So Money Episode 266, Jaquette Timmins. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to another episode of So Money. I'm really excited to have you joining me today. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. We've got a financial behaviorist on the show today. Uh, she's got quite an interesting story as to how she got to this brand, to this profession. Jaquette Timmons began college at the Fashion Institute of Technology here in New York City at the young age of 16. I was uh, studying for my SATs when I was 16, but she was going to college. And at that point, she was determined to make her mark as a shoe designer. Well, the first semester into college, she realized that, well, you know, I'm not so good at drawing. So she switched to become a marketing major. And before graduating, she met her mentor who encouraged her to head to Wall Street. Why not? And at that moment, Jackette realized there's a lot in common between the designer mindset and the world of money and personal finance. Fast forward years later, and Jackette is now a financial behaviorist and helps others to identify underlying behaviors and beliefs that help them from reaching their financial goals. She is also a coach, teacher, speaker, and writer who talks about everything from common financial problems for the middle class to the 1%. She's also the founder of Sterling Investment Management and author of Financial Intimacy, How to Create a Healthy Relationship with Your Money and Your Mate. Several takeaways from our conversation with Jackette. One, remembering the epic stock market crash of 1987, how it impacted her take on the financial markets. Two, her top habit for couples as they aim to manage their money well together. And finally, her top money failure. It was an experience that cost her, she figures, about $10,000, an expensive lesson indeed, but one that she says helped her determine how to rebrand herself more effectively. Here is Jackette Timmons. Jackette Timmons, welcome to So Money, my new friend and Brooklyn neighbor. Welcome to the yay. show. <laughs> yay, yay, yay. Thank you so much, Farnoosh. I'm so excited to be here. I am just really thrilled to have you and to share your story, your journey of how you became a financial behaviorist. Uh, we got to talk about your book, Financial Intimacy. I want to learn all about what you know that everyone else should know, doesn't know about how to have a healthy relationship with your, your money mate, your money and your mate. Um, let's start with your your journey to getting here, Jackette, you have quite a storied background. And I, 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 I bet if your, you know, 21 year old self, 17 year old self thought that you'd be doing today what you're doing, she would have had, she would have been floored because you started out in a completely different sector in fashion at FIT. What were your goals and dreams at that point? And by the way, you were only 16. So you're kind of a phenom. You're kind of a genius. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> so take us back all the way to age 16. What were your hopes and dreams then? And, and how did they shift? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I wanted to be a shoe designer. 
in high school, I worked in the mall um, and I worked in a department store that doesn't even exist any longer, but I was assigned to the shoe department and I just fell in love with the whole idea of shoes being um, a statement point and being one of those things that kind of puts an accent on an outfit. And I was like, I want to go to school to learn how to design shoes. So I only applied to one school, and that was FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology. And because I was uh, just graduating high school at the age of 16, I actually had to get permission. (laughs) From your parents or from the school? The school school wanted um, permission from my parents that I could go at such a young age. Um, so because a lot of adult things happen in college. Exactly. (laughs) But we went, we went and we did the interview and, you know, the conclusion was that I was mature enough to handle being in college at 16. And so there I went. And then, um, I had a really big, huge awakening and really a reality shock because I got to school and I realized that I really can't draw. my drawing skills um, were not going to, you know, help me to be successful. And uh, was really, I think, my first taste of like, oh, shoot, you know, there are people that do this really, really, really well. I don't. So I think I may need to think of a plan B because, as you might imagine, graduating high school at 16, a little bit of a type A personality, a little bit of a perfectionist. And the idea of not doing well in something just did not sit well with me. So I decided that, OK, I can't draw. Hold um, on a sec. Hold on one second. Can I ask a technical question? Because I'm such a I guess it's the journalist in me needs to know all the facts. Uh-huh. How did you get into FIT without drawings? If you were going on this platform of, I want to be a shoe designer, what was, what, 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 on what merit did you get accepted? Not to say that you weren't qualified to go, but, um, why was it that only then that you realized you weren't a good drawer? So a couple of things at the time. And, you know, I think just I'm a bit older than probably I look. <laughs> so this is uh, 1982 and a couple of things. One, they didn't have at the time a particular program specifically for shoe design. So I was actually coming in and kind of leading the the the, the foray into, into that. That's number one. So number two, what drawings I did have, they were enough for me to get in. But not enough when you think of it from a competitive landscape, just in terms of design in general, for me to do well in. So, um, you know, just the, the normal application process that you would go through with college and then with design, you have to have a little bit of a portfolio. But my design skills were sufficient enough for me to get in, but not enough for me to compete well. Gotcha. And you definitely don't look your age. <laughs> I think you remember my reaction when I found out how old you were at this mixer that we were both invited to. I don't know how your age came up and I won't reveal it on the show, but I, I, I had to, I asked you, what's your skincare regimen? I think that was, that was my next question. Just good old, which you haven't shared with me yet. So (laughs) just good old Pond's cold cream and a facial brush and a good moisturizer. Pond's cold cream. I'm writing that down. Yeah. 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 Nothing fancy. I think that's the thing that gets people like it's not expensive and it's not fancy, but it does the job. 
So before I interrupted you, you were going on to say how you beca- how you ended up changing direction. Of course, the epiphany <laughs> that I can't draw as w- well enough to really compete with the Stuart Weitzmans and the you know others of the world. Uh, so then, what next, and why? So what next was I decided, okay, I can't draw, but I really do want to stay uh, in the shoe design space. So let me focus on marketing. And so that's what I did. My major was marketing. And the part of FIT that people may not know is that a criteria for graduating is that you have to do a co-op. And in most instances, you've got to secure this co-op yourself. And since I was the shoe design person, I decided, well, I'm going to um, get a co-op and I'm going to do it at a you know high-end shoe designer. And so I literally just wrote a script out and I called all the high-end designers and I ended up at Salvatore Ferragamo and ended up working there long past the requirement for the co-op and learned a lot about uh not only the shoe business and the shoe design process, but also a family business, because for many, many years, um, the house of Salvatore Ferragamo was, was definitely run as a family business, not necessarily a corporate entity. So, um, yeah, that's how I made the switch. And then how I got into uh, financial services was not intentional either because after I completed my co-op with Ferragamo, I did a couple of other things still while, you know, in undergrad. And one of those other things was working at Bloomingdale, Bloomingdale's and working behind the counter of Clinique. And that is where I would end up meeting the woman who would become my mentor. And it turns out that she was the head of human resources for all of Estee Lauder. And for folks that don't know, Estee Lauder owns Clinique. And at the time, it was the family of companies were Estee Lauder, Clinique, Aramis, and Prescriptives. And so she was head of HR for all of that. And she just was, quote unquote, shopping that day um, like a blind shopper. And she happened to like what she saw of me behind the counter and uh, invited me to come and speak with her the following week. And so I did. And then she hired me and she hired me to work in human resources. So none of this was a part of my plan. (laughs) And then I get there. I graduate um, from undergrad and I get to Estee Lauder working with her as her assistant or secretary, whatever you want to call it, um, in human resources. And two months later, she announces that she's going to this company called Bankers Trust. And I kept correcting her in terms of how she was spelling it because she didn't put the apostrophe between the R and the S. That was your type A personality (laughs) getting through. Oh my God. When I look back, I'm like, I cannot believe I did that. But anyway, so that gives you a little bit of a glimpse though into how much I really knew about Wall Street other than what I read in the paper or what I heard on the evening news. But she then brought me with her to Bankers Trust and I got there and I just totally, totally fell in love. Even though you probably were one of very few women there and also women of color, what was that like? What was that uh, being a minority even today, that's, you know, it's a rarity to um, find someone like me or someone like you in uh, in the vicinity of a trading floor or, you know, a bank. 
so back then, what was it like? And um, any any interesting stories to share? Yeah, well, there are a couple of interesting stories to share in terms of what it was like. It was, you know, honestly, it wasn't so much unlike my childhood in terms of like kind of being the odd person out. (laughs) Um, Being that, you know, uh, growing up, I went to a school where I was one of two blacks in the entire school system, not in my grade, in the entire like grade school. So it was just like, oh my God. And so in, in very similar ways, that was what it was like when I got to Bankers Trust, like being one of the oddballs out. So there's that piece. Then there's also the piece of uh, having gone to FIT, which is not an, I, I, I think it's an excellent school, but it's not an Ivy League school. And so you're around all of these people that went to either elite schools or Ivy schools. They have an economics background or some sort of business background. And uh, some people can think that that's the only way to think and to operate and to be successful. So there were some uphill battles in that regard in terms of getting people to uh, pay attention to what I have to say and not let some of the more superficial things um, cloud their judgment of my ability. And that really came to light when I moved from human resources within Bankers Trust into the private bank. Um, but before I get to that, I think the other thing that really is really helpful just in terms of just shaping the philosophy that I bring to money today, the seed that was planted for that was October of 1987 and seeing how people reacted so differently to that particular stock market crash, which, um, prior how did you to, react? how did you react to that? What was your take? I wasn't, I was seven at the time. Yeah. I was just like, wow. Honestly, I was just like, wow. Cause you know, growing up, my mother, My mother was a very disciplined saver, but she didn't have this sophistication in terms of investing. So from that standpoint, I didn't have an emotional reaction to it the way that I saw other people. And I literally saw people that if they could have opened a window and they could have jumped out of it, they would have because that's how devastated they were, whether it was they lost their own money or they lost clients' money and they were freaking out. And yet on the same side, there were other people who were calm. And I was just like, wow, number one, like, why are all these people really going crazy and losing their minds? I did not really understand what the big quote unquote deal was. Um, But then on the heels of that, just really observing and paying attention to the fact that there were two very, very, very different reactions. And I was just totally curious as to why is that? If it's, if it's one event why are people reacting so diametrically different to that one particular event? Um, and so that was probably one of the first things that planted the seed for me that there's more to money than just money. And while I didn't have the language back then to describe it the way that I do now, I think that's where I really got the idea around there being a psychological and an emotional connection to money. I would love to dive into that now using your language, Jackette. What is your financial philosophy. I'm sure you have a book full of them, you know, cause, uh, where would we be without our money mantras? <laughs> right. But what would you say is your top serving, you know, in your personal life, it's, it serves you well, a financial philosophy that encaptures perhaps how you feel about money from a 
uh, from whatever perspective that's important to you, but what would you say is your leading financial philosophy? To ask why. Um, and when I say to ask why, to kind of take a step back and peel the way the layers and figure out what's really going on. So typically we don't really react to things unless we're feeling some sort of pressure, unless we are, you know, in the midst of trying to make a decision and uh, we're having a hard time making that decision, or perhaps we're in the midst of a crisis and we're trying to figure out how to adjust the crisis. So there's two aspects to responding to that. There's the the money piece because that's how you've got to deal with money issues. But then there's also something else that's going on. And I think that when you take a step back and you try to figure out what is that something else that's going on, it will give you even more insight. So the insight is again, to recognize that money is never just about money. So even if you solve the crisis, even if you address the question or whatever might be coming up for you from a money standpoint, Think about what else is going on that you can't see. I mean, that's so true, right? Because we, first of all, we don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers, Jackette, even though you come to this with a, you know, decades of experience. So everyone, whatever stage you're at, you're a beginner, you're an, you're an intermediary, you're an expert. It always pays to ask why. I always say the only reason I get things done, even though I surround myself with people who are smarter than I am, they wouldn't know what to do if I didn't constantly ask them questions. And they didn't, and it's important to, cause then they can't read my mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They need to know what's bothering me or what, what my goals are or what's, uh, what I get excited about, that just makes for better teamwork. Yep, totally. Totally, totally, totally. You mentioned your mom growing up. She was the ultimate saver. What is a pivotal experience for you growing up that relates to money? It was a money memory that now as an adult, you still reflect on with um, with a smile because it really did teach you uh, a profound amount about money. I think um, the fact that she was such a disciplined saver and, you know, whether I was babysitting or whether I was working in the mall, you know, her thing was you got to you got to save 50 percent of that. So if I babysat and I got paid ten dollars, then I had to put five dollars into either my savings account, my passbook savings account. Yes, they had those back then or my piggy bank Um, when I was working at a mall and I'd get the check. I'd have to put, you know, half of it into um, into my my checking account. So I think the the discipline of doing that and oh god if only i had continued but um i think just the the having that as a framework and a discipline to to do that and what that really taught me was no matter how much you have or how much you make there's always room for you to save something and i'm not going to stand here or sit here and say that i have necessarily always practiced that <laughs> In my adult life. Um, but at least I've always had that as a foundation and as something that I can pull from and go back to if we if you think about it from, you know, going back to your core roots and, and how does that keep you grounded? Just knowing that that was a discipline that surrounded me all my life, um, especially growing up, is just something that's really core to who I am, what I bring to the table and what I fall back on during those moments and times in my history when I have not done that. 
it is a discipline because who instinctively thinks I should save half of my income? It's hard enough to even save 5%, 10% these days. Uh, but you look at some of these millionaires I've had on the show, millionaires next door, people who are extremely successful saving millions of dollars on a modest income. These aren't people who are running companies, they're not entrepreneurs, they're teachers, they're engineers. Um, they're in some cases stay at home parents. They have managed to save a tremendous amount. Why? Because they don't buy into this 10% savings philosophy, which is great. We, we I talk about that all the time. 10% is good, but what's better is more than 10%. And if you can do 50%, okay, let's say, let's cut that in half, 25%. You're still a lot further ahead of the curve. Totally, totally. And you know, we, we live in New York City, so that might be a little bit unrealistic. Just a tad. <laughs> you know? But I think it's it's the whole idea of um, the discipline that goes with no matter what it is that you are going to do it and you're going to do it consistently. And what I will say is that it has helped me in those times when, you know, cash flow was tight or business growth was like null to void. Um, it has helped me from the standpoint of I may not have been able to practice that during those lean times, but because I practiced it during other times, I had something to fall back on. Exactly. I mean, I have to say this year has been a big spending year for my family. It's mm -hmm. been a great year to earn, but also a big year for spending. And next year, it's going to be all about, I told my husband, it's all about um, just cutting back and saving mm -hmm. and saving and saving. Sometimes you have to do that. You have to kind of, we're doing a cleanse. <laughs> we overstuffed our ourselves this year and just spent, but you know, for good reason, we were renovating. Um, I don't even want to tell you how much that's cost us. I did the Excel spreadsheet the other night about just how much money we have spent on this renovation, this three and a half month renovation, which has out, out placed us. We are now in a, in a sublet. Uh, it's a lot. It's more, it's yep. over six figures. Um, yep. Yep. But it, it's also an investment, right? Because that's going that whatever that renovation is, that's going to increase the market value of what you currently own. So it's an investment. Let's hope because, you know, <laughs> your guess is as good as mine. I'd like to think that the housing market in Brooklyn is going to maintain its frothiness for at least the next five years, hopefully bef at least as long as I'm going to sell, right. um, you know, and everyone else can lose. But I need to win. <laughs> you can always just rent it out. <laughs> exactly. True. True. Exactly. Um, let's talk about failure, Jackette. We talk about failure on this show. It's our best friend. You know, we mm -hmm. like failure because it teaches us so much about how to win in life. Mm -hmm. So in your experience, as you are developing your business and your mindset around money, what is an example of a financial failure that you experienced, what happened and what did you learn? So, um, you know, I would say that all of my money lessons come by way of my business. So uh, for me, it would be a combination of both a money failure and a business failure. And it was about two years after my book, Financial Intimacy, came out. I decided that I want to create the TED of money. <laughs> right on. So I, why not? Why not? <laughs> 
so I decided that I would do that and that I would, you know, invite um, particular speakers to come and talk about their particular perspective on the intersection of love and money. And I structured it and set it up in such a way that um, I had women speakers and some of whom, you know, and then I also had what I called the male perspective. So the women actually did like their Ted talk kind of style. And then for the male perspective, we did a panel discussion. And my idea was that we would take this on the road and we'd hit all the major cities across the country. Cause like, who doesn't want to talk about the intersection of love and money? Um, so I did it in New York and that went pretty well. I didn't have as much of an attendance as I would have wanted, but enough so that at least I broke even with that. And then we went to LA and that was a complete bust. And, um, I lost, and I didn't necessarily have enough money to pay all of the speakers, but I took care of all of their travel. I took care of all of their hotel expenses. And I even had one speaker that was coming from Canada. So, and I had five speakers and then an assistant uh, that I was, you know, paying, underwriting in terms of getting them there. And then also, you know, going to a place like the JW. I don't know what the heck I was thinking at the time, but um, going to the place like the JW Marriott to hold this conference. Mm. And I I lost a lot, a lot of money, like to the tune of more than $10,000. And um, it was really not only a financial setback, um, because it was actually probably even more than that, but it was, it was not only a financial setback, but it was also a blow to just my confidence and my spirit because I just couldn't figure out, given the topic, like why were these not sold out events? Um, and what I realized in trying to answer that question was that I needed to take a step back and go through a whole re-engineering and rebranding of my business And that's what I ended up doing. And that's why if you knew me back then, you would see a complete evolution, not in my message. My message has always been the same, but you would see a complete evolution in um, the way I sit in my message, the way I promote it and not standing behind my firm, which is Sterling Investment Management, but not standing behind my firm, which no longer manages money. But at the time, if you had gone to my site, you would think that that's what I was still doing to really embracing my role as a financial behaviorist, as a, um, I don't like the term personality brand, but as a personality, you would see that, that whole shift from then to now, and then what goes on in the back end to kind of help support that. And I don't know, I honestly, I would have preferred to have learned the lesson in a little less costly of a way, but I don't know if I would have learned that lesson if that hadn't happened. Because it's almost like, you know, that movie that's critically acclaimed, but it's a financial flop at the box office. That's what this felt like. Everybody kept saying, oh, this was fantastic. This was wonderful. You should do it here. And it's like, okay, well, you, but you didn't show up. 
Like you didn't either, you didn't show up. You heard that it was really, if you went, you, perfect. But if you didn't come, you didn't show up. You heard it was good, but why didn't you show up? And why didn't you like help to promote it? And so it was really helpful to me in terms of learning a little bit more about marketing to a retail segment, if you will, in a way that I had never done before. Because most of my work had always been through uh, corporations or nonprofits or conference organizers. So I never really had to develop the skills of marketing directly to people. And that was a huge, huge lesson. Yeah. And there's a lot of products out there, books, movies, seminars, events that I'm sure are wonderfully executed. They deserve thousands of people to buy, to consume. But you know, at the end of the day, I've heard this before with even things that I've put out, people say to me, you know, that's a, that's nice to have. It's not a need to have. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if when it comes to financial services and financial messaging, that it's at this stage and perhaps even back then, it's really about connection and your audience really feeling like they're getting you and, and you first and foremost before any product, any pitch and that mm -hmm. they want to really connect with you. And I'm really happy that you made that transition because you're fabulous. Thank you. And I more appreciate people need to that. know who you are and really <laughs> see you shine and, um, and whatever you want to sell a pencil, a t-shirt, a book, a course, they will buy it. <laughs> right. They will buy it. <laughs> Because <laughs> um, they like you and you give out so right. much great free content that it's just um, people want to support you. Mm -hmm. So that's a good failure, a costly failure, unfortunately, um, five figures, but you have recovered beautifully. So now talk about a so money moment. I'd like to ask the flip side of the coin question, which is what is an experience that you had that encompasses financial uh, success at its greatness, you know, at the greatest level, a so money moment, what happened? Oh, wow. Um, I think a more current example would be good for that. Um, and I'm going to share it because I, I, what I, what I think is really cool about it is the, um, the path that that led to it occurring. So I spoke at a conference, uh, I guess in 2013, maybe I spoke at a conference, met someone at that conference who then became a coaching client who then sent me an email like in the November ish timeframe and said, Hey, do you do, um, workshops for corporations or do you do talks for corporations? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so we get on the phone, we have a brief conversation and then we have a conversation with her planning committee. And what ended up happening is um, I ended up being commissioned to do a keynote and that keynote was going to be at, and this was for a large insurance company. And the keynote was going to be held at their headquarters and Samuel cast it to all of their employees across the U.S., the U.K., and Canada. On that same day, I was to do a meet and greet with their senior executives and then also a workshop for the employees that they identified as high potential employees. And then fast forward, I don't know, three or four months later, 
I was to do a virtual workshop that, again, all of their employees across the U.S., U.K. and uh, Canada could dial into. Prior to that, whenever I was I would either pitch something or someone would ask me, you know, what do I do? I would always either pitch a workshop or pitch a keynote. But this gave me the idea (laughs) to not why not do it all? Like, why not add even more value to what they're paying you by doing all of these different things? So the so money element to that was the fact that I never envisioned that one place would engage me to do all of those different things for the price that they paid me. And that was, I would say that that would be the so money moment. I love it. You were thinking big. Yeah. And you were thinking. And it's so so funny when you say you were thinking big, because when we got on the call, the first call was just she and I, but when we got on the call and it was, uh, you know, the person that was on the committee to make the selection, I was like, oh, I guess I should write, I should have an idea of what I'm going to charge. Like I should know this in my head before, you know, they ask me and I'm fumbling. So I wrote a number down and then I remember crossing it out <laughs> and putting a higher number on. Oh, good. I was, like, was going to say maybe yeah, yeah. I was worried you lowered the number. And then when they asked me, I gave them the higher number and they did not flinch whatsoever. Oh boy. What a lesson. Oh yeah. my gosh. Totally. I love it. I, I have a similar way of working. I have a similar MO where someone comes to me and says, we'd like to hire you for X. And I go, well, how about X, Y, and Z? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. suddenly you've got, you know, a, a triple the rate, double the rate. Um, and then also an opportunity to really show this firm what you're made of in multiple ways. And, um, it's, it, it makes for a better relationship and for the chance to work with them continuously, I think. Exactly. exactly. Well, bravo, bravo to that. And I, I can't believe, you know, just, oh, my goodness. If you think you're worth X, how about 10 X? Or how about just 2x? Just go in and ask for 2x and see what happens. You might be delightfully surprised. Exactly. Yeah, totally. All right. We're going to talk about habits. And I would love for you to share a habit from Financial Intimacy, your book. Um, We talk about how to create a healthy relationship with your money and your mate. What is one financial habit that can allow you to do that? What would be your, your number one? tracking your money. (laughs) I've been using um, Quicken and in particular Quicken Deluxe since 1995. Um, And I track not for the purposes of uh, creating a budget, which I think most people would normally, like that's the conclusion that they would normally and probably most naturally jump to in terms of the purpose of tracking. But I do it so that I can see patterns, patterns of behavior. Um, so I would say tracking. And if I can, if I can just squeeze in one more, I would also say the habit of having an accountability person or an accountability group that you actually connect with um, to have an ongoing conversation around what's going on with you and your money. That can be a professional person or it can simply be a really, really good friend that you that you trust. Um, in my particular case, the tracking is just really helpful so that I, again, I can see patterns and I can see what's going on and I can see where my leaks are. I can see where my opportunities are. I can see where, um, 
you know, where I need to just be mindful of cash flow because I mean, for many, many years, I never had a, a financial loss until the, uh, the, the conference. But even though I would end the year on in a positive at a profit, when you think about, you know, January through December, there were certainly months where I was, ne- you know, cash flow negative. And so it helps the tracking standpoint. The tracking helps me to identify what are some of the patterns that can help me prepare to avoid that in the next year. And in terms of the accountability group, what's been helpful about that is in order for me to be able to show up for my clients authentically, I need to have an outlet where I'm able to share with folks uh what's going on with me because my I don't one I don't think my clients need to know the details but two I don't think they want to know the details but I do think that they want to know that I understand what they're going through but in order for me to do that I need to be able to share and I have an accountability group that I've had if I've been using Quicken since 1995 I've had an accountability group since 1999 where we get on the call once a month to talk about where we are with our finances with our financial goals what hiccups we've come across what what wins that we've had, because sometimes I don't think we talk enough about that. Um, so those, if I can squeeze in those two things, it would be tracking your money and having an accountability partner or group. With your partner. Yeah, that's really important. How often should you be tracking? Oh my goodness. When I'm really good, I sit down once a week while I'm watching 60 Minutes <laughs> and I enter my receipts. I mean, I'm, I'm old school in that regard. Like I don't use um, any of the programs where it automatically downloads. And part of that is because I've been doing it since 1995 and I have my particular way of categorizing things. And, you know, those, those programs, I think make more work (laughs) for someone like me who has that already in place. But Mm -hmm. when I'm really good, I do it once a week in terms of entering it in when I'm not really good when, you know, my wallet is becomes unattractive because I have too many receipts in it. (laughs) Becomes like a junk drawer. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But I try to make it so that by December 31st, I've got everything ready so that when I need to send my accountant, uh, my CPA, you know, my stuff that I am ready to do that in January, because my tax deadline is actually March. 15th, not February. Right. Business owners, March 15th. Exactly. Jacket, let's do some so money fill in the blanks. You're Mm -hmm. a guest whom I forgot to send the prep packet to, in fact. So you've been answering these questions like a boss. Um, And so I'm really excited to now shift it up, shift gears and make things a little more, um, Fast paced, fun, off the cuff. And so how this works, I start a sentence and then you finish it. Okay. First thing that comes to mind. If I won the lottery tomorrow, a hundred million bucks, Powerball, first thing I would do is take a vacation. Do you not take (laughs) vacations? I haven't had a vacation in quite a while. No. So it's not something that I would encourage, but for a variety of reasons, I haven't uh, in the last uh, three years. So I would take a vacation and I would go to one of my favorite islands first, Anguilla, which is in the British ver- British Virgin Islands. Love, 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 love. All right. I'm putting that on my bucket list. Yes. The one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? Oh, my God. Diane, my cleaning lady. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say like Diane von Furstenberg or something. <laughs> like, 
I love those wrap dresses. <laughs> no, Diane, my cleaning lady. Oh my God. It's, 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 it's she's just such a blessing. <laughs> I'm just really, really grateful that, uh, that she comes and when I have to travel, she'll also come and take care of my cats. And it's just, it's just great not to have that, uh, chore. Yeah. I hear you. My, in my life, she's, her name is Millie. Okay. Millie's my, my easier or better investment in my Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And she's a great woman. I like spending time with her. She's like kicking me out of my house. She's like, get out of your house. I have to clean your house. I'm like, but I want to hang out with you. Um, All right. My next one, my biggest guilty pleasure that I spend a lot of money on is. Hmm. Food, I guess. Yeah. Well, you live in Brooklyn. Great food out there. Yeah. I would say food. One I thing, love a good meal. Yeah. I hear you. One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is. One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is. Hmm. Um, I would probably say that everybody has the same concerns. Like it doesn't matter if you are someone that you, it doesn't matter if you're on the end of the spectrum where you don't have a lot or you're on the other end of the spectrum that you do have a lot or somewhere in between. Everybody has the same concerns. So I wouldn't have felt so self-conscious about not having as much as some of my peers. That's such a good tip. Yeah, because especially when you're young, you feel like you're the only one going through something. Mm-hmm. And especially mm-hmm. with money and financial matters, no one talks about it. Mm-hmm. So you really feel as though you're isolated um, and uh, you know it's hard to open up about those things. Yeah. All right, almost done here. When I donate, I like to give to blank because... You want the name of the organization or the kind of organization? Whatever you like to say. One of my favorite organizations is called the Laundromat Project, and it's an arts-based organization that goes into communities, and its whole mission is to make art more accessible and not something that is only um, available to people of means. And economically, I think that that is important, but I also think that... um, from a psycho spiritual standpoint, it's really helpful to have people tap into their areas of creativity and to see that creativity as perhaps an outlet and not only an outlet, but a pathway for them to get out of um, sometimes challenging urban circumstances and environments. That's great. That's so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. All right. Thanks for sharing that with us. And last but not least, Jackette, and finish this. I'm Jackette Timmons. I'm so money because I get that you have to manage both the soft skills of money and the hard skills of money. And I help people to do that in a fun but poignant way. Indeed, you do. Thank you so much for the great work that you do, Jackette. It was a pleasure having you on the show. And I would love to invite you back to join me in the future. I get all these questions from readers. I would love to have you be a partner in crime for that at, at one point. Oh, I would love to do that. That would be so much fun. It would be a Thank lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> all right. We'll consider it done. We'll get you scheduled. Okay. And uh, everyone, looking forward to having you back on the show. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you. You do the same. I appreciate it. 
That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Jackette, her website is jackettetimmons.com and she is on Twitter at J-A-C-Q-M Timmons. We've got all this info at somoneypodcast.com where you can grab the transcript and comments. You can also ask me a question there. Click on Ask Farnoosh and every Friday I will be looking at those questions and hopefully answering yours. And if you haven't already, subscribe to somoneypodcast.com and you'll receive a free mini ebook, My So Money Secrets, a compilation of the best advice so far given on this podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope your day is so money.